0: Right, good morning, brothers and sisters. Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad. Maligayang Pasco. Whatever your language says, uh, joy be with you this morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So we are literally looking at the first chapter, the first page in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. While you turn there, I want to announce... And give you the joy of uh, celebrating a special Christmas gift again to our church uh, in both our pastors who have arrived. Uh, Pastor Will and his family just got in a couple of nights ago. If you would please stand, dear Barclay family. And of course, um, many of you here on Wednesday night, Pastor Christian Luanda is here as well from Kenya, who joined us in singing this morning. Praise the Lord for these gifts. Let's turn our attention. To God's word in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. For your great and glorious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, God eternal, fully God, who took on our human nature and came to save us from sin, we thank you for his glory and his grace and we pray that this morning you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ in the scriptures and glorify him in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about a question that we should ask more often. It's a question that we often have, but we often keep it buried within, suppressed, because we might feel embarrassed or don't even think to ask it. If you're a visitor here, dear non-Christian friend, it's a question you probably have this morning. You know who's not afraid to ask this question. It's all of the kids. Kids, I know you ask this question. You probably ask this question to mommy and daddy over and over again every single day, especially the little ones. It's a question that we all have that we rarely ask though. And the question is, why? It's one simple word. Why? Sounds simple, but it's a really profound and important question. It's a question, it's a great question to ask when you're reading the Bible. Why? It's a great question to ask at this time of year. Why? You know, this time of year, around the world, people are celebrating Christmas time. There's all kinds of festivities, family get-togethers, gift-giving, all kinds of decorations go up. And sometimes we fail to ask the all-important question... Why? Why so much joy and celebration? Well, it's because Jesus came into the world. Jesus was born. Why? Why was Jesus born? And why is His birth something to be celebrated, something joyful? Well, friends, these are questions that Scripture answers. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, the writer of this gospel tells us why. He tells us why Jesus was born and what His birth means for us. So this weekend, as many around the world celebrate, we too rejoice. And this morning, I want us to consider the reason for our joy. To look at why Jesus came into our world. And in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to see three reasons For Jesus' birth, three reasons why Jesus was born and why we should rejoice. First, we rejoice because Jesus came to bring God's kingdom. We rejoice because Jesus came to bring God's kingdom. So I said we're looking this morning at Matthew's gospel. This is the first gospel. This is the first book of the New Testament. Of course, the New Testament is God's revelation, God's word to us. It is foundational to our Christian faith. And here Matthew is going to tell the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. And his gospel, the first book of the New Testament, begins with a list of names. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz. It goes on and on. If you're reading in one of the older translations, this sounds even more interesting, right? Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat... Judah and his brothers, and Judah begat Perez and Zerah. And this can seem a very strange way to begin a book. Especially a book as significant as the New Testament. This seems strange. It seems weird. It can even feel dull. May I dare say it can seem boring. Our eyes can just sort of glaze over the list of names very quickly... Not paying attention, your brain is struggling to pronounce all of these Jewish names. And you can go through this without asking the all-important question. Why? Why does Matthew begin his gospel with a list of names? Why does the New Testament begin with a list of names? You probably have not heard of Mr. Saeed Al-Suwedi. Saeed al suwaidi happens to be the foremost genealogist in the United Arab Emirates. And in an article in the Gulf News a few years ago, he was featured, and this is what he says. He says, in the UAE, genealogies are the stories that reveal who we are. Genealogies are the stories that reveal who we are. The article says, in the days of old, Mr. Suwedi points out, everyone was known by the name of their tribe. Of course, today, if you know, someone wants to figure out your identity, they're going to ask you for your Emirates ID. Back in those days, they didn't have Emirates IDs. Mr. Suwedi says, we did not have ID cards or passports for identification. It was the tribe's name and family name that indicated who you were, how you introduced yourself, and how you were known. I mean, we see this still today living in this country. If you're driving down the street, many of our streets indicate the importance of genealogy. We look at Airport Road, also known as Rashid bin Said Road, or we know Fatima bint Mubarak Road. The word bin in Arabic means son. Bint means daughter. See, in the Middle Eastern culture, in this context, knowing your family tree is incredibly important. And it's not just you. It's all around the world. We see today people have made internet apps that you can go into and, you know, trace your genealogy back several uh, generations. Whoever made those apps probably earned a lot of money. Um, I know a friend of mine who traced his family tree back ten generations. And he says doing that was a very significant exercise for him. He says, it told me where I fit in the story. Friends, Matthew's family tree, Matthew's genealogy here is telling a story. He's telling the story of who Jesus is. He's in fact telling the story of God's plan from creation to restoration. And Matthew is very thoughtful, very intentional about how he structures this genealogy and the names that he includes in his genealogy. So he begins by calling Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And those words are filled with promise. You see, God made promises to Abraham and to David. Promises that all God's people were waiting to be fulfilled at the end of the Old Testament. For any Jew reading these words, looking at this genealogy, they would be filled with hope. Here it comes. Here's the king we've been waiting for. You see, the Bible begins with God creating heaven and earth. He creates all things and He creates human beings placing Adam and Eve, the first people in a beautiful garden paradise to live and have fellowship with God himself, to rule this world on behalf of God. And God dwelt among them. But Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled and failed. They sought to rule for themselves instead of ruling for God, instead of establishing God's kingdom. And they fell. And with their sin, with Adam's sin, this world was plunged into darkness and suffering and death under God's judgment. Well, You keep reading the Bible and you see that God doesn't end the story there. He begins His plan. He begins executing and unfolding His plan to save humanity, to make all things new, to fix this broken world. And a few chapters later, we see God make promises to a man named Abraham. And his promise is this, that through Abraham's family, all nations would be blessed. God would undo the curse that is upon this world because of our sin through Abraham's line. We see Abraham's family grow into a great nation named Israel. But Israel fails To obey God. Just like Adam sinned and failed, Israel sinned and failed. Once again, God acts and God establishes a king over his people, over the nation of Israel, a king named David. And God promises this king, he makes promises to King David that one of his sons would always be seated on the throne over the people of God. And his kingdom would fill the whole earth. And through David's line, God would fix our broken world and make all things new. And so there is hope that begins to grow. But as you keep reading the story, you see that King David fails. King David's sons fail. All of God's people fail. And once again, they're under God's judgment. Matthew highlights all of this for us in his genealogy. So as you read through these names, he traces the line from Abraham down to David. Look at verse 6. Jesse was the father of David, the king. And then after that, you see this kingly royal line from David going on from verse 6 and following all the way down to 11, where so many of these kings had failed so badly and sinned against God in so many ways that the people of God were exiled from their land. Just like Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, Israel was sent out of their land into captivity into Babylon. Verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. But the story doesn't end there. It continues. God's faithfulness continues right until verse 16 where David's royal line is preserved all the way Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is the son of David, the son of Abraham, who will bring God's kingdom, through whom God's promises are going to be fulfilled, through whom God will make all things new. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why we rejoice. We get excited about Jesus, the son of Abraham, through whom all nations will be blessed, The son of David through whom God's kingdom is established. The one who will set this world to right. In the coming of Jesus, we see God's king arriving to rule his people. We see a king who has come to fix our broken and messed up world. We see a sovereign king who has established God's kingdom. Who rules and reigns over all and all nations will be blessed Through him. And that's incredibly significant when we look at the world around us. We look around us and we feel the darkness and brokenness of this world enveloped in darkness. We hear of another war or another rumor of a war, maybe in your home country, or the latest natural disaster. We feel the sting of another loved one lost. Some of you have lost loved ones in the past year. This may be your first Christmas without that someone whom you deeply love. This is my first Christmas without my dad. And I think back, my heart and my mind thinks back to last Christmas when I was with him in India holding his hand as his mind and his body collapsed and deteriorated. And I was saying goodbye as he died a few days later. We feel the sting of death in this world. It's real. We hear of Omicron, and then you feel like, oh, here we go again. Man, is this pandemic just going to go on forever or what? What? You know, I've said this before. One pastor talks about the coronavirus. He says this, microscopic images of the coronavirus may show it wearing a crown, hence the name. The the word corona means crown. He says it may have temporary rule of our planet. Yet Jesus is king over this and every other virus. So no matter what adversities we face, Whether suffering or sickness, persecution or pandemics, great sorrow and loss, friends, we have joy in the midst of it all. Joy that reaches deep into our souls, deep into the sorrow that lingers and reminds us of a king who has come, a king who rules and reigns, who will fix our brokenness, who will bring ultimate peace and joy and perfection and glory to this world, who has conquered even death. And brothers and sisters, we can rejoice in this King. We say, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. That's the first reason for Jesus' coming and for our joy. He comes to fulfill God's promises and establish God's kingdom as king. And he will make all things new. But you see, there's one problem. God's king coming to reign and rule and make this world right is not necessarily good news. In fact, it poses a bit of a problem for us because you see we are we are the problem in the 20th century a famous christian author wrote a letter to the editor of a popular magazine and he his letter was concerning an article that had been published in that magazine about what's wrong with the world so here's the letter i'm going to read it to you he says dear sir Regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly. We think about how dark and gloomy this world can be, and we must ask that all important question What is that question? Why? And we realize it's you and I. We are the problem, we are sinful. We are broken, all of us. And so we need a king, not only a king who will rule and judge, but we need a king who can save and rescue. And there's good news, dear friends. There's good news for broken sinners like you and me. For you see, there's a second reason for Jesus' coming. Not only do we rejoice because Jesus fulfills God's promises and establishes God's kingdom, but we also rejoice because Jesus came to save His people from their sin. We rejoice because He comes as King and Savior. Right? So we read the story of Jesus' birth here in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I read earlier, verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, so they were engaged. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. And if you stop reading there, that's pretty scandalous. This woman was not yet married, she's engaged to be married. And now she's pregnant. She's supposed to be a virgin. And you know, some people try to get around the Christian belief in the virgin birth of Christ. Some people say, oh, you know, it it was really a myth. You see, back in those days, people believed anything. They believed that you could be born of a virgin. And I want to say, well, back in those days, I think they knew how babies were born. In fact, Joseph certainly knew, because Joseph himself is scandalized. Verse 19 tells us he resolved to divorce her because this would bring great shame. But then an angel appears and tells Joseph what has happened. Verse 18 tells us how this is so. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The angel tells Joseph, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see, if you are here this morning uh, and you are not a Christian, I want to explain to you what is very central and foundational to Christian belief. Christians believe that there is one God. There is only one true and living God. And we believe that this one God has eternally existed in three persons. This is how God reveals himself to us. Anything that we can know or say about God is only that which God tells us. And in the Bible, God has shown himself to be one God who eternally exists from all eternity as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And you might look at that and say, oh, how is that possible? How can that be? How can God be one and at the same God be Three. And the answer is, I don't know. That's a mystery. You see, He's God. And we are creatures. He is the creator. He is far above us. And it should be no surprise that God is so wonderful, so glorious, so mysterious, that He is far above what our human minds can completely fathom or comprehend. That He is one in His nature, one God, yet existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so what we're seeing here in Matthew's gospel is that in the birth of Jesus, God the Holy Spirit is active. This is a divine work. This is God Himself acting and bringing about a miracle. It is miraculous that this virgin has conceived And again, as we think about the virgin birth, as we think about God the Holy Spirit acting and bringing about this miracle, we have to ask this question. Why? Why? What is the significance of the virgin birth? Of course, we believe it, we sing about it, even as we sang this morning, but often we don't realize why. Why? Why why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? Well, what is happening here is very significant. It marks out our Lord Jesus Christ, as the head of a new creation. You see, where else is God the Holy Spirit active and moving and bringing about something where there is nothing? Back at the beginning of the Bible. So if you open the Bible to the first page of the Bible, of the Old Testament, you see that there was nothing and then God acts and creates all things. The Bible begins this way, the Bible story starts... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, there He is, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there is nothing except God. And then God speaks and says, Let there be light, and there is light. And then God keeps speaking and the entire universe, heaven and earth, all that we see around us comes into existence as God the Holy Spirit moves. And that same Holy Spirit who was active in creation is here in Matthew chapter 1 filling Mary's womb miraculously. You see, there are only two families on planet earth. In the beginning, we see God create Adam and Eve and all of us really are born into Adam's family. He's the head of that family. We come into this world as part of Adam's family. And all of of us know, of course, as I said earlier, Adam sinned, failed, rebelled against God. And so all of us come into this world inheriting Adam's sin and his sinful nature. But now in Matthew chapter 1, God is acting to establish A new family. Jesus is born of a virgin. He is not like Adam. He is different. He is going to be the head of a new family. He does not have the stain of Adam's sin. He comes to make all things new. He is the head of a new family, a new humanity. He is one who is utterly different. He is the head of God's new creation. And he is going to make all things new. And how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to save us. Save his people from Adam's sin. And we see this in verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. We sing about Jesus, we talk about Jesus, we read about Jesus. And sometimes we don't ask the question, why? Why is his name Jesus? You see, Jesus is the English transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua. And Yeshua means this, Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the name of God, the triune God, the one true God has revealed His name as Yahweh. God saves. That's why His name is Jesus. Because through this one, God is going to save. Verse 21 says, For He will save His people from their sins. Jesus is born... Not just as a king, but as a savior. As one through whom God provides forgiveness of sins. As one through whom God provides salvation. So you see friends, ultimately Christmas is about the cross. And over the cradle of our Lord Jesus Christ looms the shadow of his cross. For this Jesus who was born to be king establishes God's kingdom as a suffering Savior who dies to bear the penalty of our sins. In order to fix this broken world, he has to begin by fixing us. And you see, we can't escape our sin any other way. We are always reminded of our sin. You know this. I know this. We feel it deep down. More than the darkness that surrounds us from outside, we we can take a deep look within and see the darkness that inhabits us inside. We feel the shame of our deeds. We feel the evil of our thoughts and our words. All of our wickedness. All of our constant straying and inclination to do what is wrong. And all of the ways that we have failed And broken God's commands, and we know that we stand condemned. We know that we stand accountable and guilty. But He will save His people from their sins. And so, the crucial question for you this morning is this Am I one of His people? Are you one of His people? If you've trusted in Christ and He's your Lord, He's your King, He's your Savior, that is good news and reason to rejoice. But if you're here this morning, dear non Christian friend, and you've never known Jesus, then you're still in your sins. And the question that you have to wrestle with is how do I become a part of His people? How can I be moved, transferred from the family of Adam to the family of Christ who saves us? The question you should be asking yourself, that you probably are asking yourself, dear non-Christian friend, is this, how can I be saved from my sins? How can I escape the judgment of God that I deserve? And I've got good news for you this morning. I've got a Christmas gift for you. You can become a part of His people. You can become a part of the people that Jesus died to save from their sins. You can receive the gift of Christ today, salvation from sin. Taste the joy that Jesus gives by rescuing you from the penalty that you deserve. Experience the freedom from sin's power that only He can provide. Receive the promise of eternal life that only He can fulfill. you see the Son of God, the King that we celebrate in this season, this King, He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And He died as a substitute, bearing the penalty for anyone who would repent of sin and believe in Him. And He rose from the dead, defeating death, And He calls to you this morning. He calls to you, non-Christian friend. He calls to you, dear children. Or maybe you're here and your whole life you've said you're a Christian, you've come to Christmas service, done all those things, but you've never really known Him. Jesus calls to you to come to Him with blood-stained hands. He appeals to you to submit to His Lordship, to believe in His sacrifice, to receive the gift of salvation today. He is our perfect representative and he is our life-giving substitute whose blood washes away all sin and makes us new so if you don't know him I want to call you and appeal to you to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus today so that you can sing as we sing joy to the world hallelujah So we rejoice because Jesus has come. He's the king who establishes God's kingdom and fulfills God's promises. Second, he came as the savior to save God's people. There's one final reason in Jesus' birth, in Jesus' coming, that causes our joy to overflow. Brothers and sisters, dear friends, we rejoice because Jesus came to be God with us. He is God with us. You see, we see something else stunning here in this text concerning Jesus' coming. That in his birth, this is no ordinary child. In his lordship, this is no ordinary king. This is no ordinary man. No, we look at verses 22 to 23, and we're told that in His coming, Jesus fulfills a promise of great significance. Look at those verses. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Matthew is quoting from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament of a prophecy, a prophecy that says God Himself would come to His people. God Himself would come to rescue us. We talked about the significance of the virgin birth, and I said it marks out Jesus as the head of the new creation. The virgin birth also marks out another aspect of Jesus' identity. You see, verse 18, verse 20, we've seen that this is a miracle. Mary is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We've seen in verse 23, Matthew is citing a promise from Isaiah 7. And all through the story of the Bible, we know only this. There's only one who can save us. There's only one who can fix our broken world. There's only one who can make all things new. It is only God. Salvation belongs to the God. Only God can save us from our sins. Only God can act to make all things new. And so as we're reading this here, Matthew couldn't be any clearer as to who Jesus is. You know, a common question that we face in this country Uh, from non-Christian friends and others. Maybe you've been faced with this question. Uh, I've had the privilege of uh, going to a couple of universities and engaging uh, university students in Q&A about the Christian faith. And uh, I frequently get this question. Often it's the first question that is asked. And the question is this, is Jesus God? And I always answer, yes. I believe that Jesus is God. And I believe that Jesus is God because the Bible says that Jesus is God. And of course, there's always a follow-up question. Well, where does the Bible say that Jesus is God? And so maybe when you're talking with your friends, you can point them right here. We have it right here. On the first page of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God Himself has come into this creation to set things right. And so, friends, this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary man. What we're seeing here is the almighty, eternal God, the creator God himself, humbling himself and taking on to himself a human nature, becoming one of us, entering into our sadness and suffering, entering into this broken world to be with his people and to rescue us. He enters into our fallen world to save us from sin. You know, this is one of the glorious and most profound things imaginable, the mystery of the incarnation. You probably know this popular Christian song. Maybe you don't, but I hope you've heard it. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? And, you know, there's a debate on social media as to what Mary knew and what Mary didn't know and, you know, people going back and forth. But one line in this song sticks out to me uh, where they say, when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. It's the mystery of the incarnation. That Jesus Christ our Lord is fully God. He doesn't cease to be God and fully man taken on our human nature. He is God the Son, the the trinity that I spoke of. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God who eternally exists as three persons. Jesus is the second person of that triune God, God the Son. And sometimes people get confused with this when we speak of God as Father and God as Son, uh, maybe you're here and you're asking the question, how can God have a son? What does that even mean? Well, I want to clarify that to you a little bit more. When we speak of God the Father and God the Son, we're not talking about something that is exactly the same as human fathers and human sons. There's no process of reproduction or, or biological process by which God the Son became God the Son. When we speak of Jesus as God the Son, he is not in any way lesser Than God the Father. He's not some kind of a secondary God. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. We speak of them as Father and Son. We're not saying that Jesus came into existence at a certain point of time as God, that He's some kind of a lesser God. That's not what we mean. It's not like human fathers and sons where the Father is before the Son. No, it's different. However, there are some things that are similar. You see. In human fatherhood and sonship, sons share the same nature as their father. I look like my father. There are things that I do that are similar to the things he did, that I've inherited by virtue of being his son. Human sons have the same nature as their father. And everything that belongs to a father belongs to his son. So when the Bible speaks of of Jesus being God the son, when we speak of God the father and God the son, what we mean by that is God the son, our Lord Jesus Christ, shares everything that God the father has. He has the exact same nature. They share one nature. He is fully God just as God the father is fully God. He is begotten of the father eternally from all eternity, they have existed in perfect love and union as Father and Son and everything that belongs to the Father, all authority, all power, all glory, belongs to Jesus, God the Son. And here in Matthew 1, we're seeing this God the Son who has existed from all eternity, who is the creator God himself, the one who spoke all creation into existence, the one who upholds all creation even right now, Every atom and molecule of the universe, every star in its place, every single one of us and every breath that we take is being sustained by God the Son. This almighty, glorious God who had the worship of the angels singing glory to God from all eternity takes on human nature yet without sin. Becomes a helpless baby born into this world without sin, but to save His people from sin so that they, we, can be with Him forever, can be with Him, can have a relationship with Him, can have fellowship and nearness to God Himself. Friends, that is good news. We don't serve or worship a God who is far off, We don't pray to a God who is unconcerned with our problems and cares. Yes, He is absolutely distinct from us. He is transcendent. He is far above us. He is the Creator and we are mere creatures. But He is the God who in Christ has drawn near. Jesus, the one true God, has lived among us has walked among us, has suffered like us, has died for us. And He calls us to draw near to Him. And so, we rejoice. We rejoice and we hope in this God, not a God far off, but a God who has promised to be with us always for all eternity Whatever the suffering you're facing, dear friend, whatever trial you're going through, no matter how deep the loss is or how hard it feels, whatever sin you're battling, rejoice in knowing this, that our God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ, that He promises to be with us even now, Because God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who dwelt among us, that same Jesus, risen from the dead and ascended as King, has sent God the Spirit to dwell within us when we believe in Him. So we rejoice in His presence with us now, and we rejoice knowing this, that one day He will come again. Jesus will come again, not as a helpless baby, but as a victorious king. And this creation will be made new. No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, no more sin. We will see His face and we will be with Him forever in His everlasting kingdom. Matthew's gospel begins with a declaration of good news, that this king has been born, that this savior has been born, that God has come to be with us. And Matthew's gospel also ends with a declaration. Not a declaration made by angels like we see in Matthew chapter 1, but a declaration that every follower of Jesus Christ is to make. A declaration of good news. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior and Lord, who has made all things new. Thank you for your presence with us. May we proclaim this good news to every tribe and tongue and nation on the planet, good news of salvation from sin and everlasting joy. In Jesus' name, amen.